So I'm here with the composer Jonathan Dove just before his In Conversation event with Kate Kennedy. Welcome to Oxford. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to start with quite a general question, which is what does commemoration mean to you? When you think of commemoration, do you think in terms of individuals or do you think in terms of um, mass loss? Say? Well, both, I think. Um, I've had my own experiences of losses and some of those I have commemorated in pieces of music. Um, and I've also worked uh, on uh, a commemoration for an individual a, a couple of times now, a string quartet, which was mm-hmm. somebody I didn't meet, but his widow told me all about him, and I, in some way, something of his character found its way into the mm-hmm. quartet. And much more consciously and deliberately, uh, a work which was specifically commissioned uh, to commemorate someone who died too young, someone mm. who died at the age of 19, and his mother, 10 years after his death, wanted to do something to, uh, well, to, to mark the moment, but also, I think, to be able to move on in some way. And so I heard lots of stories mm. about young Robert, who was clearly a bit of a scamp. And, right. um, and that was, it was very interesting, kind of getting inside the character of someone who was quite different from me. I was quite a well-behaved Little child of mine was not always climbing up trees, and Robert was yes. a naughty boy who uh, went beyond boundaries and uh, and got into all kinds of trouble. And you know, it was an adventurous spirit, um, yes. and it was wonderful to think of ways of celebrating that. Uh, so, uh, although the, the piece does acknowledge the moment of death, uh, a lot of it I think is quite fun. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and there's a, a Walt Whitman poem at the end which offered me a way of thinking about what, it, what does a life mean? It, it can't, its value mm. can't be simply its length. Mm-hmm. So um, we're thinking about what happens when a child goes out into the world. There was a child goes forth every day is the, the Whitman mm-hmm. poem and how in a way he absorbs everything that's in the world. Mm. Well, that's interesting because Whitman, I think, spent a lot of time nursing young men who had, who were going to die too mm. soon in the American Civil War, and saw a lot of those, uh, saw a lot of those deaths. Um, so your piece for an unknown soldier is also in commemoration of of people who died too young, young men, mm. and it was um, commissioned by Portsmouth Grammar School, and sung by um, young people of uh, similar ages. So did you feel there was a kind of um, educational aspect to that work? Well, actually, I suppose I was thinking more of the audience that it would be very powerful that um, they would be hearing, as you say, young people. You know, the 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 elder teenagers were of an age they, mm. where they would be they were just about to be called up, and so hearing those young voices and also the voices of children of the time, and we had mm. a children's chorus in that piece. Mm. Uh, I thought would would make it more immediate and vivid. Um, but I suppose I was also imagining that the, and I think this is an important thing, isn't it, uh, that the singer is reliving the words that they're singing. And so in that sense, yes, that um, all of the words in For an Unknown Soldier came from uh, the poets who were alive during the Great War, and four of them died before the end of the war, mm. were, were killed. Mm. Uh, so... Um, their, their poems are first-hand accounts of the experience of war mm. and for young people to get inside those words and to give them 
voice. It's not that's not only sound. I think when you when you sing, you are lending your your personality, your, your all of your feelings, your strength of feeling, to those words. Um, so you are you are embodying them mm. uh, and in a sense enacting them. So I think that's uh, that does something for the words. It does something for the people who are doing the singing, and it does mm. something for the mm, listener. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, I agree. I think that singing is possibly the most personal way of mu- making music. Creating that sound within you helps you bring something of yourself to the performance of music of all kinds. And there's something about uh, once you've been through the experience, you empathise and, and learn. Um, I wondered if you thought think there were any other ways in which music helps us to remember. Can music remember past music in any way, for example? Yes, well, I mean, a, a lot of music is made out of earlier music, and sometimes uh, very consciously and deliberately and, and sort of overtly. And I've made pieces out of the music of Mozart and mm. Beethoven, mm. Uh, deliberately just taking some fragments of their music. I've most recently done that with some uh, music of Debussy, uh, in order to set some of his letters to the two women who became his wives, mm. and um, and I wanted, in a way, to conjure something of what they might have been thinking. I think, well, they, these women would have had a lot of Debussy's piano music in their head, the mm-hmm. music that he was writing when uh, he knew them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made sense to steal some of. Mm. To use his music mm, um, mm. To, to weave into the yeah. groove. So music sort of almost takes on a kind of an archival function, I suppose, in that way. And I sometimes think it can also be quite Proustian, that you can hear something and it and it helps you remember something that might seem very unconnected. Well, also, I had the experience uh, years ago. Um, I used to play the piano for singers in all kinds of itinerary <laughs> situations. And we were doing a concert in a hospice and there was a woman who hadn't spoken for years, and one of the singers sang a song that she remembered from her courting days, and she started singing along, and mm. so she was finally, she was using words that she mm. hadn't used for a long time. Mm. And the, so the music uh, we access in a different part of our memory, I think in a different part of the brain. I'm sure. But obviously sure. The, the music and the words come together. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, moving on, um, one of your most famous works is When She Died, which is a TV opera um, commemorating the death of Princess Diana. So, um, what were your feelings when Channel 4 commissioned you to write that opera? Well, they didn't actually choose the subject. Um, the okay. subject arose in a conversation with the director that they offered me to, to work with, um, Rupert Edwards, who's a, a wonderful man, and it was in our conversation... I think he actually said, of course, you could never do anything like The Death of Princess Diana. And I suddenly thought, but actually, that is the perfect subject for a television opera because it's a story that most people will have experienced through television mm-hmm. and that she's a person who people knew, I mean, through newspapers and so on, but, but also very much through television. Um, so it was to do with the, you know, her relationship with the medium. Mm. Um, but I did think, do I dare to do this because... Really, I would need to try and create, in some way, the voices of the people. Yes. Um, there was this incredible national outpouring of grief, which I personally didn't share. I didn't. I did. Ha- I had no personal feelings mm-hmm. about Princess Diana, but 
I felt very much alone in that. Did you feel a bit discomforted by the mass outpouring? I was away from it. I was in Italy, so I didn't sort of experience it really. Um, well, it was startling, and it felt as if it involved a lot of people. Mm. And in a way, the opera was partly my attempt to understand it and think about it. But I also I felt that this is this is an experience which many people have shared, and mm. uh, by turning it into opera, you're um, creating you know, your a story in sound and in song, which enables, I think, people to empathise with that story, to, to get inside. So it's very important that people would recognise. I couldn't, I couldn't distort their experience. I didn't want to distort their mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. in such a way that they would think, oh no, it wasn't like that at all. I wanted them to feel like, oh yes, there, was, there is something mm-hmm. that seems uh, right about that. So... Um, so in a way, there's a, the commemoration there was less about Diana herself and more about the uh, the the way that people interpreted her, the, what they projected onto her, their, their feelings mm-hmm. about her. Um, so did you find yourself thinking about speaking, as it were, almost for the people and to the people, for a large mass of people? Did you find yourself changing your musical language in any way, or was it still you? Well, I certainly was trying to be as direct as possible, and mm-hmm. I also thought that uh, people turning on the television, you know, they would turn on because it was about Princess Diana, mm-hmm. not necessarily... Uh, because they had an interest in opera, and so I was quite cautious in the early parts of the piece in the kind of singing that there wasn't a lot of what I'd call extreme singing, uh, and uh, the more extreme things came later in the piece, so that you had a chance to be drawn into the story. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, I I held back somewhat um, in order not to lose. A television audience. Really. So I have to know what extreme singing is. Is it something like Schrestema <laughs> or something? Oh, well, I think I think really high notes are very thrilling on stage, but yeah. on a particularly on a little television, right. they they, yeah. they may not yeah. be as beautiful as you were <laughs> intending. Okay. Uh, and if you're not used to hearing opera singers, that would be probably the thing that's most likely to be off-putting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the uh, you know, the power of those artists to convey character mm. uh, through their whole physical performance, uh, but focusing particularly on the voice, I think will gradually draw in anyone, um, so long as you don't scare them off in <laughs> yes, a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Clive James, who knew Diana quite well, I think, made an interesting remark in a piece he wrote, and he said she, he thought she would have liked the Verdi at the funeral better than the Elton John, and that... <laughs> Um, her, her taste hadn't necessarily been reflected totally. Well, she would have preferred the, the classical music. So. Anyway, um, going on, in 2012 you composed the portrait of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, not strictly um, a commemoration. Um, I'm not sure if you can commemorate people who are still alive, actually, but um, certainly a piece written in the wake of a country's internal strife. So how did you set about composing this piece? Well, uh, the idea was uh, suggested to me curiously in a it was a, a, a kind of competition that the uh, Radio Three invited listeners to suggest 
suitable subject for a 21st century musical portrait. And more than one person suggested Aung San Suu Kyi, and when I thought of her, I did quite quickly imagine a musical shape. I I was thinking about the years of house arrest Mm -hmm. and um, that kind of steadfastness and and patience. Um, And, of course, there's you know, there's violence at the beginning of her life and there's violence around the time mm. that she returned to um, to Burma. But um, that, I, th- I imagine that there would be this mm, peaceful music, which is what I thought that she represented, mm-hmm. uh, which would be unchanged by all of the bombardments around. And, and so that was just a, that was a, kind of a musical idea and that it would be... Uh, that the peaceful thing would have a, a, a kind of grand flowering at the end, uh, representing the sort of celebratory acclaim with which she was greeted as she made her way around the world. Actually, mm. in that mm. year. Um, and that reception has changed now, um, obviously, with the Rohingya um, crisis. So I wonder if you feel differently about the piece or if we're hearing a different piece now or is it the same? I certainly would be inclined to think about titling it perhaps uh, a portrait of Aung San Suu Kyi in 2012 because yeah. that's actually what it what it was and she seems different now and I hope at some point in the future we'll seem different again yes. um, as our perspectives change yeah. uh, and yes, of course we're, we're, when you're in the middle of events you don't really know what the story is that's interesting. The idea that um, you would you would date a, um, a piece so specifically, so that it took on the meaning of that time, rather than taking on a more permanent, universal meaning. I suppose. Well, I think that that moment and that celebratory moment is something uh, that you know, obviously, it was a vivid event for many people. It was it's certainly something you can imagine and relate to. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Hojoki, am I pronouncing that right? Hojoki? Hojoki? Let's call it that. Hojoki um, is a fascinating piece. It's for tenor and orchestra. Um, it's counter-tenor. Oh, sorry, counter-tenor yeah. and orchestra. Mm. And it's inspired by an 800-year-old essay by a Japanese monk about various sort of natural disasters that afflicted his city. So there was fire, whirlwind, um, earthquake and famine. Um, I wonder when you were writing it, did was uh, were Hiroshima and Nagasaki in your minds when you were composing it? Actually, no, I wasn't thinking so much about that. I was more struck that in a very short space of time, this man lived through so many dramatic events, uh, um, sort of climatic events, yeah. and that we were now moving into a time where through climate change, these were going to be coming more right. and more common. Yeah. So, in a way, that way was the idea that it was holding up a, quite a distant mirror okay. to our own time. Um, and, yeah, so the... Um, those Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not in my mind at all. Um, I think it is a, a well-known text... Uh, but in fact, it was a, a, a reading a particular translation that okay. caught my imagination, and um, I mean, it's a fascinating story because this man, the beginning of his life, was very wealthy, um, but uh, the experiences of, of all of these disasters leads him eventually to 
retired to a little hut, ten foot square, at the foot of the mountain, mm. and live as a Zen monk, mm. Mm. Uh, which I find very touching. Mm. Yes, I do too. Yeah. Um, finally, one of your most recent pieces, very moving pieces in Damascus, which I think is the tenor and string quartet. Um, what were your feelings on composing this? This is very recent and very raw. Yes. The string quartet for whom I was writing the piece were keen to do something about Syria, and I'm not sure that I would have... Um, chosen such a difficult subject uh, had they not done that. But because I had actually, I'd been to Damascus and to Palmyra mm. uh, 20 something years ago, I did always have a feeling about that place. I mean, I went, you know, as a, as a tourist, I went mm. uh, partly doing a little research for a, a play for which I was writing some music. But I had uh, such uh, wonderful experiences of the, the people I met who showed me such extraordinary kindness and generosity, including people who really had nothing. There was a little Bedouin boy who showed me how to tie a turban, um, which stopped me getting sunstroke in wandering around the ruins in Palmyra. I think Middle Eastern hospitality is legendary, actually. Mm. I think it's yeah. such an important thing. Yeah. It, I, I found that humbling and, yeah, I can uh, imagine. and very moving. And, and so then watching the dramatic events unfolding since 2011 um, and feeling just helpless to do yes. anything uh, and I don't I'm under no illusions that writing a piece of music will change anything you know, okay. in, in, in the sense it certainly won't change anything practical um, in the short term mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's important that people's voices are heard and I think that you know, what music mm. can do certainly is to lend some force to a voice mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I think it also offers the possibility of empathy, as we mentioned yes. earlier, and that means that the listener can then stand in the shoes of the person. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a chance of getting... I feel you can get more inside an experience. Um, and I think when, you know, when art works at its best, it reawakens our humanity, it kind of reminds us yeah. of, our best, uh, of our better self. Uh, so it's not that I think it's a completely useless <laughs> um, endeavour. Um, <clears throat> and the, the challenge then, as, as with everything, is to find the, the words, the right words to set. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted something that was coming absolutely out of Syria, but mm -hmm. I don't speak in Arabic, so already I'm looking at something in translation. And so you're very much dependent on the, the quality of the, the mm -hmm. translation and how the translation mm -hmm. strikes you. So all, it's already a one remove. Uh, and I looked at a lot of Syrian poetry and writings, and at this point there was quite a lot coming out. Um, but there wasn't so much of it that I felt that I could add anything to. Um, some very raw, very angry, understandably angry yes. uh, pieces, which I thought spoke very powerfully and directly, and wouldn't sound any more powerful if somebody sang them. Um, 
But then I came across these writings by Ali Safar, which I hadn't noticed initially because they don't look like poetry on the page, but mm-hmm. they have a very poetic quality. Mm. And they, I suppose, are extraordinarily understated as, as because they are a first-hand account of living in a war zone. Um, uh, and yet everything is presented with some delicacy and acknowledging some surprisingly ordinary everyday aspects mm. of life, even in the worst circumstances. And there seemed to be space for some music, and I suppose, in the end, uh, if I am moved by words, then there is a chance that I'm going to want to sing them in some way, to find a way of singing them, or to find a way for other people to sing them. uh, In the first instance, I do actually sing everything that I write. And so... I am just trusting my emotional responses to lead me to um, kind of fertile texts. Thank you. That's been absolutely fascinating.